Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, and welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're joined by Dr. Paul E. Peterson, the Henry Lee Shattuck Professor of Government and Director of the Program on Education Policy and Governance at Harvard University. If this is your first time listening to us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on issues at the intersection of education and culture. We appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to Anchored at cltexam.com. Now, without any further ado, let's get on with the conversation. Welcome back to the Anchored Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test, here today with Dr. Paul Peterson. Dr. Peterson is a Henry Lee Shattuck Professor of Government and the Director of the Program on Education Policy and Governance at Harvard University, a Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and Senior Editor of Education Next, a Journal of Opinion and Research. Dr. Peterson, what an honor to connect with you today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So I'd like to start off and learn a bit about actually your early childhood education. Uh, what are some of your first memories of school and what kind of schools did you go to growing up? Well, I went to a public school in a little town in Minnesota called Montevideo. And that's where I went to school for, well, actually kindergarten was only six weeks long. It was the first year Montevideo did have kindergarten. Uh, and so it was uh, held in the basement of the school, except for two weeks, you got to go to the library, but they only had room in the library for a few kids at a time. So the rest of us were dumped into the basement where it was a screaming mess. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, there it was for the next uh, 13 years. That's amazing. And okay, so I'm thinking kindergarten, is it, would this have been around 1945? Do you have a clear memory uh, of the end of World War II? I do have memory of uh, victory in Japan, but it's very vague. It's not precise at all. Wow, wow, that's amazing. Fantastic, okay, so, and then did you stay in a public school system all the way through 12th grade? I can tell you one thing about the war that I do remember, and that is we had to have stamps. Stamps hmm. to buy sugar, and stamps to buy gasoline for our car, except my dad had a service station. So we never worried too much about the car <laughs> side. That makes sense, that's great. And did you stay in the public school system uh, all the way through 12th grade? I did. Fantastic. Well, I'm interested in hearing about, uh, you have a PhD from the University of Chicago, uh, an institution that has played a major role in the preservation of the classics for future generations. Uh, I'd love to learn about your time at the University of Chicago and how it shaped your thinking about the role of the classics in American education. Well, I actually loved the University of Chicago and it had a profound influence on me. Uh, it was uh, probably the most decisive educational influence, uh, even though I didn't get there until I got to graduate school. Uh, but, um, and of course, graduate school, you don't go through the uh, classics in the same way that you do as an undergraduate. 
but nonetheless, it's just part of Chicago, and it was a pervasive. Uh, uh, you just sort of uh, it was in the atmosphere, and and there were so many events that were happening on the campus that you 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 uh, you grasp the meaning of uh, of the traditions, and and actually, my college, which is a little college in uh, northern Minnesota. Uh, was stacked with the University of Chicago professors. So they had all gone through uh, the Chicago approach. And uh, in, in English literature, that took the form of, well, do you understand the text? You don't go in there with some psychological interpretation. You go in there and say, okay, what is the meaning of the text? What is the inner deeper hidden secret meaning of the text? Can you figure out what uh, Dostoevsky was trying to say in the Brothers Karamazov? Who is the central character, and what is that telling us about the book? So uh, that was that was a really uh, eye-opening experience for me in college, and uh, therefore I was interested in going on to uh, the University of Chicago once I finished my four years in the liberal arts tradition. Mm. Um, now, I, I want to turn over and chat about uh, the Wall Street Journal article that you wrote uh, just last week, um, talking about the growth in support for uh, for school choice kind of in, in the midst of COVID. I actually got a call from Michael Ortner. He's kind of a, my CEO coach and a, an investor in CLT. And he sent the article uh, over to me and said, you've got to see if you can get uh, Dr. Dr. Peterson on uh, the podcast. So thank you so much for your, your quick response. It's an honor to have you. Uh, I'm wondering if you are optimistic uh, that, that perhaps we're, we're reaching a tipping point uh, with school choice. How, how would you respond to that question? Well, you know, it's a, it's a long uh, struggle. If you go back to my days at the University of Chicago, that's where I first learned about it because that's where Dr. Milton Friedman was. And that was, uh, you know, that was in the 60s. And uh, then we had the important study by uh, James Coleman, who was also a professor at Chicago, which showed that private schools were doing uh, better than the uh, public schools, or more exactly, Catholic schools were doing better than the public schools at educating students. And so that was a profound study. And I was very optimistic back in those days that uh, school choice would gather a lot of steam. And so I uh, kept my eye on it. Uh, but the opposition uh, from uh, many quarters has been you know, very difficult to overcome for the, for the choice movement. And uh, so the victories have been small and marginal and growth has been modest. Uh, you know, we've got 6% of our students in uh, in charter schools in the United States, but uh, only about 1% of the students are on scholarships or vouchers to go to private schools. So, uh, you know, to say that we're at a turning point is optimistic, but I would say we're in a growth spurt right now. And that's really quite remarkable given where things were about a year ago when it looked uh, pretty much like the choice movement was over with. So explain this dynamic to me. I saw a recent poll that, that as many as 72% uh, of Americans support school choice. It would seem with, with that level uh, majority support uh, that politicians who are fighting against it 
uh, may have a hard time getting reelected. Why doesn't it work like that? Well, education is not a big issue for the ordinary uh, person who votes on election day. Uh, the uh, you know only about what twenty five percent of adults are parents of a child who is in school at that time. Lots of people have had children or will have children, but there's only a fairly small percentage of people who actually have a child in school at any particular point in time. Mm -hmm. And they're more concerned about, you know, getting the right teacher or getting the right situation for their child. They can't you know, engaging in broad policy questions is a luxury. And, and people who are raising children don't have much time for luxury. So, so they don't pay much attention to those big questions. They pay attention to what's happening to their child. Now, on the other side, you've got uh, teacher organizations that are passionate about preventing choice because choice is very popular. And if it ever gets established, it's very difficult to go back to pre-choice days. One thing that we have noticed is that every time there's a choice victory, it sticks, it doesn't, it doesn't disappear. So each one of these little marginal steps forward consolidates the choice movement for further steps forward. Uh, but you know, none of the steps that have been taken thus far are, are giant steps. They're they're baby steps forward. And so as optimistic as I am in that, um, in that uh, op-ed piece that I wrote, uh, I have to admit that that's, that's comparing it to where we were. That's not like comparing it to where it might become. And that's, that's still gonna take more effort, more time. Can, can you give our audience a sense of how school choice in other countries? Uh, are there other countries you can look at where they, they fought for school choice and won the battle and, and benefited nationally uh, from the move? Well, the Netherlands is probably the best example. I don't know if people battled for it. It just sort of happened accidentally. They have uh, different religious and uh, traditions in that country, and there were lots of struggles over whether or not kids should go to Catholic schools or Protestant schools or secular schools, and then later on, Muslim schools. And so the solution was, okay, well, let's just let the government pay the way and people decide where they want to send their kids to school. So it's a school choice program, but it was never presented as a school choice program. It was a way of solving a religious conflict that existed in the society of, of, you know, decades and decades ago. Uh, so uh, the Dutch have inherited that system and they've kept it. It's a good example of once you put in a system of choice, it doesn't go away. Uh, and the Dutch have a very educated population. They have one of the most educated populations in the world and uh, their, their, their schools are doing far better than those in the United States. Mm. So I want to show you a book, and we actually had uh, Jack and Jennifer uh, on the show not long ago. Uh, the title of the, of the book is A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. Um, now, here, here at CLT, of course, we are big fans uh, of the school choice movement, uh, but you can see by the title, uh, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, and this is very popular with, with public school teachers right now. Um, school choice folks are not presented in the best of light, uh, being presented as wolves, of course. Uh, and one of the arguments that they make from the very beginning, essentially, is that this is partisan, 
Uh, they, they tied this into DeVos and the Trump administration. Um, is school choice, is it bipartisan at this point? Or would you say it's, it's something that, that is still looking for that bipartisan support? Well, there have always been Democrats uh, who have supported school choice, though it's fair to say that the greatest support has been on the Republican side. Uh, on the Republican side, there's, there's by no means uh, a unified point of view because a lot of people live in rural areas like I did when I was a boy. And the public school in our community was something that was really important to the community as a whole. I played in the in the school band and, uh, you know, we played for every football game and basketball game. And, you know, this was, everybody would come to these games. This is the only thing to do in town was to go to the high school sports games. And so this was a big part of the community. Mm -hmm. And uh, I could go on. There's many other things that the schools did for the community. And that is still true in many parts of the country and especially in rural areas. And therefore to try to persuade a rural community that they should uh, you know, have kids go to a wide variety of schools rather than to the one school in their community, that's not an easy task. So uh, you know, rural and, and Republicans come from rural America. So it's not a natural Republican issue. Mm -hmm. it's, it's much more a national, it's much more uh, a, a natural democratic issue because the people who are suffering the most under the current educational system are low-income urban minority uh, families. Mm -hmm. and, and there the schools have been deteriorating, uh, certainly not getting any better, and, uh, and children uh, from disadvantaged homes are, are just getting a terrible education. So you would think that you would have, you know, much stronger democratic support. Uh, and, and it's a surprise that you get Republicans. The other thing about Republicans is a lot of them live in affluent suburbs. So that's changing now because the affluent people in the United States are becoming Democrats uh, because actually it, it makes sense because the Democratic Party is becoming the party of the rich, the party of the rich and the party of the poor the party of minorities and the party of the well-to-do. And so, you know, the well-to-do, they live in suburbia and uh, as I do, I'm one of them. I live in Wellesley, Massachusetts, and uh, we have a perfectly fine uh, school in our community, public school in our community. And the private schools that compete with it are, uh, are competing for the same affluent uh, population. And the people who send their kids to public schools are very strong supporters of the public schools. So, uh, and, and uh, at one time, they both, my neighbors voted Republican. Uh, that's no longer the case. Uh, the Republican Party has become the party of the working class, uh, mm -hmm. of the people in the manufacturing sector. And uh, the uh, upper middle class has drifted into the Democratic side. So, um, you know, the, the partisan story here is very complicated and changing all the time. And, and to sort of reduce it to say Republicans are for it and Democrats are against it is, is quite misleading. Mm, fascinating. So here's my next question. I, I really puzzled over this a lot. So a, a number of, of large uh, private Christian or Catholic um, heads of school uh, that represent big schools uh, are not 
fans uh, of school choice. Uh, they have um, some real concerns that that with school choice is going to mean government regulation when they want to maintain uh, autonomy for um, you know historic Christian uh, distinctives for what they're they're teaching. Uh, they don't want that kind of government interference. Um, how would you respond uh, to to that kind of concern? Well, you know, I think that uh, all depends on the private school's financial situation. Those that have uh, a, a, an enrollment that they don't have to worry about, uh, they really don't want to have any government uh, um, interfering with their operations. They, they like their autonomy. They're a little bit like, um, like the university I teach at Harvard. It wants to be able to do whatever it wants and doesn't want the government to start uh, interfering with it. So if you've got a lot of resources, you like the independence that comes with being a private institution. But uh, the Catholic uh, schools in the United States are in trouble. They have lost enrollment in recent uh, decades and they've lost a lot of resources. Uh, the church uh, itself can't give them the support and their, uh, the cost of, of private education. If the Catholic schools has gone up very steeply, uh, in part because we don't have a lay, a, it's a lay teacher now. It used to be the uh, the nuns taught in school for, mm -hmm. for nothing. And so that was wonderful. You'd have pretty talented people and you didn't have to pay them very much. Uh, you just had to provide them with the basic essentials of, of life. So now it's, um, it's a changed situation. And so the Catholic schools are eager to have uh, support from uh, the government uh, mm -hmm. most nearly everywhere. Of course, the Catholic Church itself is very uh, diverse, so I wouldn't say it's true in every place, and I wouldn't say your question is incorrect, but on the whole, I'd say Catholics are supporting school choice more than ever today. I just talked to the uh, head of the uh, school system in Boston, who's the Catholic school system in Boston, and oh. he's very excited about the fact that uh, that they are gaining a lot of students. And he's been a very strong, vigorous supporter of school choice uh, for many, many years. Yeah, Tom Carroll, uh, he, he's been on the podcast as well and is a good friend. This is true. Tom is uh, is the person I talked with. And uh, Tom was at in Albany, New York, trying to create a school choice program there uh, a couple of decades ago. And, and now he's... Mm. He's been asked to lead the, the schools in the Boston area, which shows you how much support that concept of choice has in the, in the Catholic community. Yeah. Yeah, he, he's doing great work, and he's actually on the board here at CLT, so we'll certainly send him this podcast as well. Um, well, I want to talk with you next. Uh, this is a question I think our audience really loves here at the Anchor Podcast. Um, the books, uh, even the education books that have been most formative on you. Uh, we've got a lot of young listeners, uh, college students who – maybe are looking into a future in education, maybe as a teacher, uh, what is the book that they they have to read before they enter the classroom? Oh, well, of course, you're giving me a chance to say the ideal book is the one sitting right here on my desk called Saving Schools. Uh, from Horace Mann to Virtual Learning, it's the history of American education and it explains why we are in the, in the situation we are today. And I wrote that specifically uh, to be used in, in classrooms, in, in uh, schools of education, uh, because I felt like the history books that are out there now leave you with a feeling that, uh, you know, our educational system is getting better and better. Uh, 
And I have my experience is, is that the educational system in the United States has deteriorated over the last 25 to 50 years. And uh, the historical accounts that are out there don't explain why. How did that come to be? And so what I try to do in this is to say, look at the history of education in the United States is a wonderful history. There's a lot of great things that happened in the 19th century. We were leaders of the world. Uh, we, we, we built schools when, when Europeans uh, were not, and they had a head start on us. Uh, it was part of the great uh, emergence of the United States as the, as the superpower in the world mm -hmm. after World War II. The groundwork was done in the early part of the 20th century, late 19th century, early 20th century. But then somewhere we sort of lost our way and, and we did it because we got more federal control, we got more collective bargaining, uh, we got uh, more attention to uh, this uh, secondary issue and problem. Uh, more and more interest groups got in there and, and said, well, we need to do this and that. And the basic purposes of education uh, were ignored, and we didn't leave things to to the teachers and the and the local school board officials that had built the system. Well, that's what I want to pick your brain about, and in, in from Horace Mann of virtual classrooms. Um, so, if you were to ask, you know, Thomas Jefferson or Harry Beecher Stowe or Frederick Douglass, some of the great minds in American history about the basic purpose of education. Uh, they would have talked about maybe religious formation or the study of logic and rhetoric and grammar, philosophy, classical languages. Um, so much of what made education education for some of the greatest minds in America, uh, those disciplines are entirely removed from the typical K through 12 experience. Um, in some ways, I, I would say maybe what we call education wouldn't even be recognizable to someone like Ben Franklin. Uh, do you think that's accurate is, or is that going a bit far? Well, of course, things have changed. We're not teaching Greek and Latin. I don't know that uh, we could go back to that time. Um, but, you know, we're not teaching any languages at all. And, you know, the best way... I actually did learn Latin in, in high school in this little town in Minnesota. They actually did have, she was the best teacher in the school, not surprisingly, because she was so well-educated. Uh, but uh, so it is a fairly, you know, it's a loss in, in, in modern times. Uh, but Latin, you, I don't really feel like the loss of Latin instruction is the central problem. It's it's the loss of understanding your own language. And you learn your own language by learning other language. You learn about the structure of the language and you learn about how much we borrow from other languages to create our own language. You learn how complex a linguistical structure is. So there's just so much that you can learn by, by learning another language, but you have to learn it in a genuine way and not in a, you know, in a, in a trivial way, which is the way in which it's currently taught. So, um, you know, and that's generally true out there. Uh, if the quality of what is being taught is much more the significant issue than the, than the, the, the subject matter itself. Uh, uh, students, uh, uh, I was discussing this with my wife and, and she, she read uh, 
Charles Dickens, uh, David Copperfield. And, you know, who reads David Copperfield cover to cover in high school anymore, unless you're in an advanced class or maybe in a private school, but it's just not, it's not a thought that students can do that. You know, somebody who's 16 years of age is thought not to be capable of reading a, a long book cover to cover. That's, that's, that's not within their their capability. And so we totally underestimate the capabilities of our students today in a way that people didn't 50 years ago. And do you attribute part of that, especially now to, to the smartphone and just the distractions students have in the digital age? Well, you know, it's getting worse because in the digital age of people's attention span is getting shorter and shorter. And so all everything is happening. Everything's being shortened. Everything is tightened. Everything is abridged. And uh, this is not only true in our in our high schools, but it's true in our colleges and universities as well. University students just don't want to spend the time it takes to learn things in detail. Fantastic. We've been here with Dr. Paul Peterson uh, from Harvard University. Again, Dr. Peterson, the book is from Horace Mann to Virtual Classrooms. Is that right? That's it. Uh, called Saving Schools. All right. If they want to avoid Amazon, where can they get the books? Well, you can get it at your local bookstore and, and you can get it. Uh, but, you know, Amazon is probably the best place. <laughs> That's where I would get it. I just order it and it'll come in the mail. All right. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.